you know, last week, if you were uh, here and not at the all-church retreat, then you heard Pastor Stan preach on Elijah, and he gave kind of a little brief synopsis of, of the prophet Elijah, and the prophet Elijah was a remarkable prophet, and he, um, he did incredible things. God did incredible things through him, and you know, he was able to predict uh, a drought that occurred. And then as uh, Pastor Stan talked about last week, uh, he helped work miraculously to give food uh, to, a, uh, uh, to a widow and to a son who was uh, dying in the midst of that drought. Uh, he also raised somebody from the dead. Uh, he did remarkable things. And in chapter 18, which is not the chapter we're talking about today, uh, it's this remarkable scene. I'd invite you to go back if you haven't seen it or heard it. Um, and it's where uh, he takes on all the different priests of the god Baal, uh, and he does it there on Mount Carmel. We were able to see that. Those of us who were in Israel last February, we were able to see Mount Carmel, and it's kind of the first, uh, uh, the first time that we see uh, trash talking um, in the Bible. You may recall this. He begins to make fun of the priest, and he begins to say, well, what's wrong with your god? Is your god sleeping? Is he away on vacation? Is he deep in thought? Is this why Baal's not working and then he does this remarkable uh, uh, exercise where all of a sudden it is clear that God is Yahweh and not Baal. Now this was great for Elijah, it was a great for Yahweh, except for the fact that uh, there was a king and a queen, Ahaz and Queen Jezebel, and they loved Baal and so when they heard what happened, they were furious. And it is at that place that we find ourselves here in chapter 19 of 1 Kings. So please listen to these words. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid. He got up and he fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. And suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. And he looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank, and then he went into the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they are seeking my life to take it away. God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. 
When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel as king over Aram. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abelmola, as prophet in your place. And whoever escapes from the sword of Hazel, Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, every mouth that has not kissed him. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we pray that you would be here with us in this time and in this place. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So again, I want us to remember that even if you don't know the story of Elijah, what we need to remember is that God worked amazingly in the life of Elijah. And after all of those things that God had done, all those miracles, now we've reached a place where Jezebel wants him dead. And so he immediately flees to a place that's beyond uh, her kingdom to make sure that he can find some safety. But the truth, of course, is that Elijah was, as we can hear in this story, was in despair. He was in a place of darkness, perhaps even a bit depressed. He wants to die. He appears listless. He believes, as he says later on, that he's all alone. Everything around him is bleak and hopeless. And someone has said that despair is always colorblind. It can only see the dark tints. And that is true, is it not? Despair and discouragement also make it, often make it incredibly difficult for us to ever see any light or hope or anything good. But it's important to see in this scene that God does not greet uh, his despair or his complaints with any kind of punishment or, or any kind of reprimand. Instead, he meets him with this angel. It's this incredible scene where the angel comes down and literally touches him as a reminder of the presence of God and how God is with him. Then he feeds him. He, he gives him something to drink. And then he allows him to sleep. And I think this is a beautiful sign of the nurturing side of God that we may not always think about. And as I was thinking about it this week, I just wanted to remind you that if you are in a place, even now, where you feel a bit of despair or darkness, or if you feel that in the days ahead, to always remember 1 Kings 19, to go back and to remember this sign of a nurturing God, of a God who loves you, of a God who wants to feed you, who wants to be with you, of a God who allows us to sleep under his protection. And so this is the kind of God that we see in this particular scene as he comes down and cares for Elijah. Then Elijah wakes up and he feeds Elijah again, the angel does, and gives him some more to drink and then says, okay, it's time for you now to go on a long journey. 
So he goes on a journey to Mount Horeb. Now, we may not all know Mount Horeb, but it's also called in Scripture Mount Sinai. And many of us have probably heard of Mount Sinai. And if you're an Israelite hearing this story, what you remember about Mount Sinai is that this is where Moses saw God. And so there's a bit of foreshadowing as to whether or not this means Elijah is about to see God. So he goes on this long journey, and he finally reaches the mountain. And then God says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Tim Keller makes this great point, which is that whenever it is that God is asking a question, in this case, a question to Elijah, he's not asking God this question, or he's not asking Elijah this question because God doesn't know what he's doing there. Clearly, God knows exactly what he's doing there. Rather, he is giving opportunity for Elijah to stop and to consider why exactly is he where he is. Oftentimes, when we get into a certain place, especially perhaps a dark place or a place of despair, we may have done so almost subconsciously and not even knowing exactly how we got in this position or why we are there. And there's a great gift in simply stopping and just beginning to consider, why am I here? How did I get here? What am I feeling? What am I thinking? And so God creates this space for Elijah to simply stop and to think and to process as a part, perhaps even even of his journey and his healing. And so Elijah responds to God, you know, I'll tell you why I am here. He says, basically, I've been passionate about God. I've done what God wants me to do. And I'm just serving a bunch of recalcitrant Israelites. They don't seem to give a rip about God. I'm all alone, he says. My life is in great peril. Now, these things, of course, in many ways are true, and that's the thing. I mean, when you get into a place of darkness or despair, oftentimes there are, of course, struggles that you are facing. But one of the things we also know is that Elijah is not necessarily seeing the whole story right here in this bit of despair. He seems to have forgotten that God has protected him all along the way, that God has even helped him to raise some, a young boy from the dead. And yet he seems to have forgotten how God has worked miraculously in him, how God can always do incredible things. And he says here that I'm all alone. But of course, what we also know is God will say later is that there are 7,000 Israelites who have not bowed down to Baal. But again, this is what happens when we get into dark places, which is that we easily begin to forget and not be able to see the positive. We seem to be unable to see everything clearly. We all go through this in one place or another, right? Sometimes pastors get like this with congregation members. They say, oh, our people aren't doing anything. I'm doing all the work. And they forget to see everything that the congregation is doing. Uh, we do it as spouses. If you get into a, a dark place about a spouse, it's easy, of course, to forget everything good that the spouse has done. And we just quickly see the struggles and the things that the spouse seems not to have done. It happens at work sometimes with colleagues. And we get so upset that our colleagues, oh, they're not doing anything. And perhaps Perhaps if you simply took some time to begin to say, I'm just going to write down the things that my colleagues are actually doing that are actually helpful. It might help us to begin to see in a fuller way. But despair and darkness almost always, just like fear, as we said in David and Goliath, it begins to shrink our vision. And all we begin to see is the darkness and the despair. And so Elijah says, it's all hopeless, basically. I am going to die at some point here. And so at this point, God says to him, I want you to come out to the cave. And so he goes out to the cave, to the entrance of the cave. 
And it's this very famous scene where the winds come, and this is a huge wind. It's splitting rocks. It's splitting the mountains. But God is not in the wind. Then there's a great earthquake, and the, all the earth, the, the ground is trembling, but God is not in the earthquake. Then there is a fire, but God is not in the fire. But then as you remember, God comes in the silence, in an eerie silence, as the NRSV says. And it is there in that silent moment in which God, or which Elijah finally hears God and feels the presence of God. Now, I could talk for a moment here about the fact that there are times in Scripture where God actually is seen in the fire and the wind and the earthquake. I'm not going to take time to talk through that this morning, but I just want to be clear about that. And yet, of course, it is very significant to us that God is found here in the silence. It's what we've been talking about from time to time over the last several months at least, if not longer, about this reality of the importance of silence when it comes to our relationship with God and the reality that if we are not silent, so often the winds and the fires and the earthquakes that are going on inside of us and outside of us can easily be so loud that we never hear God. We've been talking about how um, starting on September 11th, we're going to have a, a 9 o'clock and a 1045 and about a 70 or 75 minute service and, and how we're not going to fill that by having a longer sermon. Amen. Nor are we just going to add a bunch of songs, but we're going to bring in different elements. And one of those elements that we're going to be bringing in from time to time is simply that element of silence. I was reading something last week that talked about the fact that if you have a moment of quiet in a worship service, it very well might be the first time that those in your congregations have been quiet and still all week. There is a gift, it seems to me, in silence. One of the things that we want our worship to do, we want it to be a model for what you do Monday through Saturday. In other words, we pray during Sunday morning worship because we want you to pray throughout the week. We read scripture Monday through Saturday because we want you to read scripture throughout the week. We sing because we want you to sing, right? We are, we are with some regularity saying, you know, Alexa, uh, play Hillsong United on Pandora. If you want to know, that's a pretty good channel. And, and then we get to hear some praise songs. It's not like that's the only, I know people have a sense of what pastors do. It's not the only music that we listen to. Um, but but if you, every day to be able to listen to some of this. And we also believe then that if we start to create moments of silence in our Sunday morning worship, hopefully it begins to cultivate in you this desire for more silence throughout your week so that we can begin to hear God speak. Silence is a remarkably countercultural exercise in our world that is full of noise. So Elijah, I want us to remember this. Elijah has this incredible experience. God's already met him through the angel. He's fed him. He's given him something to drink. He's allowed him to sleep. Then he's able to experience the power of God and the winds and the fire and the earthquake. All of these things have happened to Elijah. And then God comes to him one more time. And he says to Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing here? And what does Elijah say after experiencing this remarkable gift from the Almighty? He says this, 
I've been passionate about God, God, about what God's done to me. I've been trying to do all of these great things, and yet I'm serving these recalcitrant Israelites. They don't seem to give a rip about God at all, and now my life is in peril. If you go back, you can read it basically verbatim, almost word for word. Elijah gives the exact same response as he did before all of those things. Isn't that remarkable? God shows his power and his strength and his presence, and yet Elijah says the exact same thing. It is as if it had absolutely no effect whatsoever. You see, I have a feeling that what Elijah actually wants in this time is not really necessarily the presence of God Or to see the power of God, he certainly doesn't seem to remember it very well. You know what Elijah wants, it seems, is Elijah just wants to get rid of Jezebel and those recalcitrant Israelites. What Elijah really wants at the end of the day is to get rid of every obstacle and problem and challenge that is before him. And then if that happens, perhaps then Elijah will begin to worship God. Perhaps then Elijah will be able to say, oh God, you are so great, I remember everything. But what he wants initially, it seems, the one thing he wants is to get rid of all of those obstacles and those challenges. And something tells me that many of us, including myself, may not be all that different. You see, what we desire is we want to worship God, but first we want to make sure that everything is running smooth. Because otherwise, all we can think about are those struggles or those obstacles or those challenges before us. And what we forget is that God never promised us that we would have no challenges. God never promised us that we would not have a Jezebel or a King Ahaz or people around us who aren't doing what we want them to do or anything. God never promised that we will not have challenges or obstacles. Instead, what God promises us is that God will always be with us. And what we see happening here in this remarkable scene is that God almost ignores Elijah in this case. And he says this, okay, Elijah, now here's what you need to go do. He says, okay, Elijah, whatever you say, but here's what you need to go do. And he gives them a whole new mission, including, I want us to see, anointing Elisha, who is the next to come. He's the next gen of Elijah. He kind of sows into him. It's going to be your work now. He's investing in the next generation. It's remarkable what God's doing here. God is saying, okay, I have cared for you. I've loved you. I've nurtured you. I've listened to you. I've embraced you. But there are times, we need to be clear, when God says, okay, but now it is time. Rather than you just continuing to be here and stewing in this, now is the time for you to move forward. Now is the time for you to go to the next challenge, to the next mission. And this week and last week, as I kind of uh, um, soaked in this passage, I couldn't help but begin to think, you know, over the last almost two and a half years of our lives uh, together, some of us as a community and some of us as individuals. 
And of course, as we've said, it's been a challenge. There have been many challenges, but we have seen God work, right? We've talked about it before, how God worked with us for about six months or five months, worshiping every day out here, right? Or every Sunday out here, turning uh, parking spaces into holy places, as we have said. God's worked in remarkable ways in terms of keeping us unified. I've seen a lot of churches kind of fracture in this time over all the different issues that we faced over the last two years. And there's been a remarkable amount of unity. And I have been so thankful to the faithfulness of this congregation in that time. But if I can be honest with you, I will also tell you that there are moments, as my guess is, that you've had in your own life or in your own workplace or wherever it is that you are, where there have been moments of despair, when it has been easy to focus on the negative kinds of things. I've said before, you know, we worked for about three or four years on a whole new property renovation, you know, and as you know, most of you, we were three days away from kind of unveiling it. We were all so excited, and all of a sudden, then we had to put all that on the back burner, and it's fresh in my mind because we're starting to talk about it again, and I'm like, really? All over? We're starting again? It's frustrating, amen? And then thinking about the isolation that we've oftentimes felt, I mean, one of the things that makes this congregation unique in my mind are the relationships that we have and the amount of isolation that we've had in the midst of the two years has, been, has placed an incredible weight on us. And of course, one of the things that's most difficult, I'll be uh, a, a incredibly transparent here, is to say that we've kept waiting, you know, for some folks to return. We said, oh, you know, once COVID's done, then they'll come back. And I know I have other pastor friends for whom that is the case. And I've told our elders and our staff that what we're beginning to see now as we get into September and October, that's kind of who is here. And while there certainly are still some that are watching online, here is the hard truth. There are also those who were with us the Sunday before COVID who we will not see again. Some of them have found other churches. Some of them have just gotten out of the habit. Some of them have just said, no, we're just not gonna, we're not gonna come. And I will tell you as a pastor, all of these relationships, they are important and we grieve the loss of that. And there are moments, yes, when I get a bit upset about that, when I get in a moment of despair, which is why I have so loved this particular passage. Because I've realized that I spend probably far too much time saying to the Lord, Lord, please just remove all the obstacles. Lord, help COVID to just go completely away. Help inflation to drop. Help our politics to work out. Help gas to get cheaper. Help us just to be magically kind of everyone be on the exact same page so that everything is perfect. And then we'll move forward. And then we'll go to the next thing. And this story says, no, there are moments when you have to say, stop waiting for every obstacle to be cleared. Stop waiting for every challenge to have been surmounted. But instead, simply get going. Keep going. God has a post COVID mission in the works for ZPC. And I have begun to see that even more over these last couple of weeks. We saw it last weekend with the all church retreat. It was this beautiful reminder of the importance of relationships. We saw so many people who didn't know each other and they got to know each other for the first time or others who got to know each other better. And it was this beautiful sign of the importance of community and how finally at long last we're able to gather together again. And that is a gift. Friday night for the second inquirers in a row, we had uh, between 25 and 30 inquirers who were in our house. My living room was 80 degrees. It was so hot. Not this hot, but it was hot. 
But there was this great thing, some people who were brand new, others who, were, who had been around for a while, others who had left and who have come back, and whatever everybody's story was, but to be able to see these stories of people who say, hey, we want to be a part of what this body is doing. Yesterday, of course, we had that great community event, which was this reminder of our call to cross 86th to cross racial divides, to cross denominational divides. In order to be together, to be on mission together, there was a girl, a non-ZPCer, who was with one of my daughters, and she said, kind of as they were kind of playing around in the bounce houses and doing other things, and she said, this is the best day of my life. She said, I hope that you guys do this again next year. It was this reminder of the impact that we can have This summer, even from afar, I got to experience again and again as I FaceTime with my children, the impact of our next-gen ministry, the impact, and Becky alluded to this in her prayer, the impact of so many of you adults and some high schoolers who are feeding into our middle schoolers and who are helping to teach them all of these remarkable things, this reminder of the importance of our next-gen ministry, the importance like Elijah to Elisha, the importance of pouring in to our young children who will one day further the mission of God. And this past week, if you can believe it, I heard from our general contractor who said that this week, this week, they will begin on this food pantry. Now, uh, let me be a little bit honest. I'll believe it when I see it. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But it is a sign. It is, again, a reminder of this fact that God continues to work. And I don't know where you are this morning, and maybe you're in the midst of your own darkness and grief. And what I want you to know is I want to remind you that God meets you right there. And if right now what you need is simply to be loved, if what you need is restful sleep, if what you need to be is fed and given something to drink, that God is there to do that for you right there. Read 1 Kings 19. See that angel taking care of Elijah and know that you are loved and cared for. But there's also many of us, myself included, for whom we also need to say this is not the time to wait for one more obstacle to be removed, one more challenge to kind of go to the wayside. But instead, those obstacles and those challenges are opportunities for God to be revealed in such a way that at times it will cause the earth to shatter because of the wind. At times it will cause the earth to quake. At times it will cause famed or fires to flare at times it will be God simply speaking in silence but somehow and in some way God will speak God will move God will be glorified and the gift is this we get to be a part of what God is doing So my hope and my prayer, sisters and brothers in Christ, is that whatever you are facing, whatever winds are whipping through your life right now, that you would know that God is with you and that God is not done with you just as God is not done with this congregation and says, let's keep moving forward. Amen? Amen. Let us pray.
God, we give you great praise for the ways in which we have seen you at work. We know, Lord, that sometimes in our darkness or despair, whatever it is that we might be facing, maybe it's a relational struggle or a struggle at work or with family, that we are not alone, that you love us and that you care for us. But we also know, Lord, that there are times when we may struggle to move forward and there are times when you simply call us to keep taking the next step. When you say that we, you are not done with us. Help us to be quiet enough at times to be able to hear you and to know that you are on the move. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.